Good morning. Good morning. You know, as I always said, I, I always mean it from my heart that it's a, it's a pleasure, it's an honor to get to talk to someone about God. But it's even a greater cheerment for people to actually come and listen to you. We have to ask ourselves, if I can feel this strong about talking about God to other people and to preaching and, and stuff, why can't I do it in my daily life outside of the building? My co-workers, do they know that I'm a Christian? People I come in contact regularly, <clears throat> do they know that I'm a Christian? Have you ever asked yourself, <clears throat> what if I'd have done this? And that's why my lesson this morning is going to be, what if? <clears throat> what if I'd have done that? Have you ever wondered what could have been in your life if you'd made different decisions than what you made? <clears throat> Excuse me. Because different decisions in life can lead to those what could have been moments. I'm thinking back, I entered into the military before I graduated high school. Back then they had what they called transaction where you'd go into a split option training. You finish your junior year of high school and you go off for your basic training during the summer between your junior and senior year of high school. You get through your basic training and then you come back. You finish out high school and then you go off for your advanced training and then you go wherever they send you. But what if I'd been able to enter into college before I graduated high school? But now as I look around, it's just the opposite. Now you can enter into college before high school, but not the military. But what, what if I hadn't even graduated from high school at all? We sometimes call this the what if game, whereas Marsha and I uh, say the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. You know, I should have did this, or I wish I'd have done that, I could have done this. This morning, we're going to look at the life of Jehoram, the king of Israel. And God is going to show us what could have been. <clears throat> it's that what if. I know I said the last time I gave him a lesson on 2 Kings chapter 2, that it was kind of had to stay on our toes when you do it, when you had Elijah and Elijah in the same sermon. Well, this morning, I'm going to have Jehovah, uh, Jeroboam and Jehoram in the same one. So we have to kind of keep our minds, making sure I'm talking about the right person. It's going to be 2 Kings chapter 3. In the first part, or the first eight verses, 1 through 8 of 2 Kings chapter 3, we're going to see the rebellion. Because Jehoram is a wicked king, doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But we seem to get a half-hearted commending of Jehoram. He was not quite as bad as his father Ahab or his mother Jezebel, for he did remove the pillars of Baal that Ahab made. He is not the diehard Baal worshiper. But he clung, clung to the sins of Jeroboam and the false worship that he established in Dan and Bethel. Now the details about Jehoram 
and what he does are important to understand the message of this chapter. Now start, Jehoram is, is a little better than his parents, but not enough to matter, or as they say, move the needle. We're reminded by this connection to Ahab and Jezebel that the nation of Israel is under judgment for turning away from the Lord. Now this was confirmed in uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, where we see Elijah rejected at Bethel. Now the second detail, <clears throat> excuse me, I want us to look at, is also important to what we're going to see. Verse 4 tells us that the king of Moab had been paying a staggering tribute to King Ahab. Moab paid 100,000 lambs in the wool of 100,000 rams. This is an astronomical amount that's being given. So when Ahab dies, Ahazah becomes king, but only reigns two years. So the next son of Ahab, Jehoram, becomes king. Moab sees that this is the opportunity to get out of this burdensome tribute. So verse 5 records that Mesa, the king of Moab, rebels against the king of Israel. <clears throat> Jehoram follows in his father's footsteps. He does not seek the Lord, but he immediately musters his army to go fight against Moab. But he's going to call on Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, to help him. Now in the past, Jehoshaphat helped Jer Jehoram's father fight against Syria nearly to the loss of his own life. So Jehoram asked Jehoshaphat to help him like he helped his father. Chapter 3, verse 7, <clears throat> excuse me, he asked him, <clears throat> will you go with me to battle against Moab? Now Jehoshaphat's response is the same as he gave to Ahab when he asked it in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 4. We are one, so let us go battle together. Now you'll notice a difference in what happens this time. However, last, the last time said that they needed to inquire of the Lord before going into battle. 1 Kings 22, chapter, chapter 22, verse 5. Said that they needed to inquire of the Lord before going into battle. Now this time, neither Jehoram or, nor Jehoshaphat choose to inquire of the Lord. They simply gather their troops, make their battle plans, and go through the wilderness of Edom to attack Moab, chapter 3, verse 8. And we see that the king of Edom likes that they are going to battle against Moab, so his troops join him with theirs. And all three armies march for seven days through the wilderness. Now further down in 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 9 through 14, we're going to see where the trouble is. For seven days... They made their march. There seemed to be no water for the army or the animals. They are in trouble. Did you ever watch Wagon Train or any other western when they're going out across these flats and out across these prairies and all, there's no water. And we see how they, the troubles that they are. We hear the same thing pretty much. <clears throat> they have these animals. They have their own selves and they just don't have any water. The king of Israel declares in verse 10 that the Lord has brought us out here to die by the hand of Moab. Now this is a very interesting observation. 
Keep this concern in the back of your mind because in verse 11, Jehoshaphat spiritually wakes up and he asks, if there was a prophet of the Lord here that can inquire of the Lord. Now they want to inquire on the Lord. Their plan and their ways is not working out. So now they want to inquire of the Lord. Now that these kings and their armies are doomed as they march in the wilderness for a week, they decide that they need to seek God's will. Before we go on any further, how often do we do this in our own lives? <clears throat> how often do we see certain circumstances, make decisions, carry on with our plans, only then realize the trouble that we're facing and cry out to the Lord for rescue? <clears throat> how many times... <clears throat> Do we forge ahead in our lives, leaving God behind? Only to try to come back to God when we find ourselves in trouble for our decision to ignore God's will and his teachings. So before we condemn Jehoram and Jehoshaphat too much, we should consider how often we put ourselves in these similar circumstances because we did not seek the will of the Lord before we press forward with our desires. These three kings find themselves, as I said, in deep trouble. The king of Israel says they're doomed. The king of Judah says that we need to find a prophet of the Lord. Curiously, it is one of the servants of the king of Israel who, showed, who knows that Elijah is here and was a servant of Elijah, chapter 3, verse 11. Jehoshaphat says that Elijah will possess God's word and they travel to him. What about the people that we're around daily? Do they know that we possess God's word? Do they know that they can come to us to hear God's word? We should live our lives daily so that everyone should know that we're a child of God. When the three kings arrive, the response of Elijah is sharp. Elisha tells the king of Israel that he hath no business coming to him. He even tells him to go to the prophets of your father and your mother. Since you walk in the ways of your parents and their false worship with their false gods, go ahead and consult them. We know from several other stories in the Bible what happens when someone consults these false uh, prophets and false gods. He said, why do you think you are going to seek the Lord now? The king of Israel responds that the Lord has put us in this position to be given over into Moab's hand. He's already putting the blame on God. So we need to hear what God has to say since it is God who has put us in this predicament. Just like Jehoram. How, how many times do we only seek the Lord when we get into a jam? but do not want God to bear our God for all of our life. You see the fake spirituality of Jehoram here. Now I want us to notice that God sees through it. Elijah takes an oath in verse 14 that he would not see or speak to Jehoram if we're not that God has some regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. God has nothing to do with Israel now. 
God will have nothing to do with Jehovah. You cannot come to the Lord only in your moments of desperation, but never at any other time in your life and think that God is going to help you. In other words, as I said many other times, we cannot use God as a spare tire only when we need him. God is not going to listen or help those who try to use God like a, a lucky rabbit's foot or some kind of good, a good luck charm. God is not your genie in a bottle to be called upon to grant your wishes when you need him. God would not help Jehovah, but God is only going to answer because of the king of Judah who is there. And in essence, God would let Jehovah die in the wilderness of the judgment for his sinning. But because of the righteousness of Jehoshaphat, the Lord is going to answer. <clears throat> now I'm not saying that we can't call upon the Lord at any time. We just need to be careful how we go about that in our lives. We need to have God in our lives constantly. Because chapter, uh, 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 15 through 19, we're going to find out, see the prophecy here. Now we need to remember why these three kings came to Elijah. They are in need of water for themselves, their armies, and their animals. They are about to die in the wilderness after traveling through it. Elijah has the magician playing the word of the Lord. He gives his message through Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. God declares that he will make these dry valleys filled with pools of water. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. For thus saith the Lord, You shall not see wind, neither shall you see rain. Yet that valley will be filled with water, that you may drink both ye and your cattle and your beasts. <coughs> Chapter 16 and 17. And God declares that he will make these dry valleys filled with pools of water. But it's going to happen in a miraculous way. The valley will be filled with water, even though there will be no rain or wind. This is going to be so much water that you, your men, your animals will drink. But then God goes further with this message. Look at verse 18. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 18. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He would deliver the Moab, Moabites, also into your hand. It's, it's too easy for God to give them water in the wilderness. It's simple for God. God has done that for Israel in the in past when they were in the wilderness with Moses. It's too easy for God to just give water in a miraculous way. And by the way, before we continue, I want us to think about it for a moment. Do we think of God in this way? It's easy for the Lord to give overflowing water in the middle of nowhere. It is so easy that God says that he must do more. He will also deliver Moab into their hands. Then Elijah goes about telling them what this is going to happen. They are going to attack every fortified city, every choice city. 
They're going to cut down every good tree and stop all of the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land. Now anyone who knew the law of Moses should take a step back a moment when they hear these words. There's something wrong with this prophecy that Elijah has just given. Listen to what God has declared about Israel going to war before going into the promised land. Say so when you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by welding the axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the fields human, that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food, you may destroy and cut down that you may build sedgeworks against the city that makes war against you until it falls. Deuteronomy 20, 19 and 20. Deuteronomy 20, 19 and 20. We also see in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 2, verse 9, that God also instructed Israel not to go war, to war with Moab when they came into the land. Yet, we had a crossroad moments. What declares what's going to happen. They're going to war with Moab and they're going to have victory. But victory in a way that God had not wanted Israel to attack in the past. This curious prophecy is given at this moment and no one seems to catch the word. Now if we're going further down in 2 Kings chapter 3 verse 20 through 27 we're going to see the rescue. The next morning Water came from all directions, and the land was filled with water. Just as God said it would happen. When the Moabites get up early in the morning to fight, the sun was shining on the water in such a way that they thought the water looked as red as blood. They are so convinced from the distance that the water looked like blood that they believe a great battle happened the day before, and it is the blood of the armies that's flowing in this river thinking that the three kings had turned on each other and their blood was flowing down the river. They think the three kings and the armies just went together, turned on each other, and destroyed each other. <clears throat> but then the Moabites rise up and they, they go to plunder the bodies. Of course, they're wrong about their assessment. The kings and the army have not died. So when the Moabites come to the Israel camp, the Israelites rose up and fought the back, and the Moabites fled. Then they invade Moab and do exactly what God told them to do. They destroyed towns. They threw stones on the good fields. <coughs> Stopped up every spring of water and cut down every good tree. The king of Moab, Moab took 700 swordsmen with them and tried just to break through the enemy lines to kill the king of Edom. But he failed even to do this. It seems like a glorious victory for Israel and Jehovah. But look at verse 27. 2 Kings chapter 3. Verse 27. Then he took his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was giant in the nation against Israel. And they departed from him and returned to their own land. The king of Moab took his firstborn son, who was the 
succeed him as king and offered him as a burnt offering on the wall. Great wrath came against Israel. Israel withdrew and returned to their own land. There are a number of ways that this final verse is tried to be, to be understood. The first suggestion that Israel was so filled with wrath for what the king of Moab did that Israel retreated and returned home. However, the Hebrew word wording typically refers to divine wrath against wrongdoers, not personal indication. Now, it seems unlikely that the meaning is that Israel was so upset by seeing this that they left. Thank you, sir. The second suggestion is that the Moabites were so furious against Israel when they saw their king offer his son on the wall. The problem with this is that if God was with Israel, it would not matter what the king of Moab did, nor it would not matter how mad the Moabite armies became. God would still give the victory. The only other suggestion is to read it as most translations have rendered. Verse 27. The wrath against Israel is from God. Therefore, Israel retreats and goes back to his own land. Now here's what we say it's a great story. But for the next little bit of time that's left, I want us to look through this story, dissect it out, and see how what we can learn from it and apply it in our own lives. The whole text identifies the wickedness of Israel. Jer Jehoram's uh, reign is no different than his brother's or his parents' reign. <clears throat> Jehoram has no interest in seeking the will of the Lord. Elijah confirms that God is, is done with Israel completely. Judgment is due on Jehoram and on Israel. Do not forget that God said that judgment was going to happen in the generation after Ahab only because for a moment, Ahab repented. God is ready for Jehovah to die by Moabite hands or by the thirst in the wilderness. The wrath is great against Israel. Every Israel, everything that Israel does is against the will and the command of the Lord. But God is going to give Jehoram water in the wilderness, even though he is in his rebellion. God is even going to further than that. It was too easy to give him water. God wants to display, as I said, his glory even further. God's going to give Jehoram victory over the Moabites, pushing them back into their own land and putting them back into subjection. We can ask the question, why? Why is God going to give Jehoram a wicked king ruling over a wicked nation that has no regard for Elijah, Elijah, or God? Why is he giving them victory? Only because the Lord has regard for the king of Judah. It is only because the king of Judah had gained some favor with the Lord that the Lord would provide this exodus rescue. Because of the king of Judah, water would flow in the desert. Because of the king of Judah, the water would look like it turned to blood, sending the Moabite armies into their hands. Because of the king of Judah, the nations that rise up against God's people are subjected. God was showing how much he could have done for Israel. But there was a problem. Their sins had kept them from enjoying 
God's blessings. Because they did not seek the Lord, they were under judgment. Because they would not submit their lives to God's will, they were missing out on all that God could have done for the king, for the people, and for the nation. Now I want us to see how we are like Jehoram and like Israel at times. The wrath of God stands against us because we have rejected the ways of the Lord. So why does God do good for anyone on earth today? God does good still because he has regard for the righteous king of Judah, Jesus. Only because of Jesus can we find any blessings. Only because of Jesus can we have victory. Only because of Jesus can we be set free from sin. Only because of Jesus can God flow his blessings upon us. But we are to see something. Our sins interfere with what God could accomplish. Jehoram was supposed to see what could have been if he was not under God's wrath. Jehovah missed what God was doing. He did not look to God as anything more than the God of our last resort to be looked upon in the times of trouble. So he has turned away from the full life to the full victory because the wrath of God reminded him and the people of Israel that his sins interfered with what God could have done for Jehoram and for Israel. Now in closing, I want us to look at all God can do for each and every one if you would simply give your life to Him and if we would follow His ways. As we think about having bold faith, I want us to think about how much God, more God could be with us if we would choose to fully give our lives to Him. Our sins interfere with what God could accomplish if we would see and listen to the Lord. Think about the relationship we could have with the Lord if we would tear down our idols, whatever they may be, from our lives and from our hearts. Think about how transformed we could be if we would courageously fight against the sins and the traps of life have entangled us. Jesus was constantly telling people that he had so much to give them if they would completely turn to him. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 3 and 36. John 3, 36. Jesus said, said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 4, 13 and 14. John 4, 13 and 14. Do not work for the food that perish, but for the food that, in, for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. John 6 and 27. John 6 and 27. And then in John chapter 6, verse 35, John 6 and 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, but whoever believes in me, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6 and 35. As uh, 
Brother Jonathan said this morning when we was talking about Jesus, Jesus said here in John chapter 10, verse 9 through 10, uh, John 10, 9, 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 10, 9 and 10. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. John chapter 6, verse 53 through 56. This is another reason we need to attend the first hour of Bible study. How both of these goes together and tells us who, God, who Jesus is and what our relationship is with him. Jesus kept saying that you do not have life because you have not immersed your life in him. Your sins are blocking you from giving yourself to him and enjoying true life. Is Jesus the air that you breathe? Is he your very life that you eat and drink? Or is your God a convenience rather than the Lord of all of earth? Jesus calls us to get out of the boat, walk on the water, trust in the life that he will give us. And if we need to be baptized and enjoy this life in Christ, or maybe we've already done that, we've already become baptized in, in, the, God, in the Christ, but we have stepped out of his way, got entangled with some sin, we need the prayers and the encouragement of the congregation, whatever need may be, we have should come forward. At this time, we'll sing our song of invitation. What's the